Welcome to the Christ Institutes, the Four Horsemen of the Woke Apocalypse series. I'm Pastor Levi Secret of Christ Bible Church, and I thank you for joining us. Today we have Dr. Paul Helseth, who is the Professor of Christian Thought at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, teaching us about the fourth and final horseman, postmodernism. Postmodernism rejects the existence or the knowability of objective truth, and it is everywhere found in our culture today. Please listen carefully as we see how Christians should think about the challenges brought to us by postmodernism. Thank you. Um, that's a nice introduction. I appreciate it. Um, it's fun to see people that have had a big influence on me. Ardell, in, in particular, has been a friend um, and uh, a mentor. And when my father died 17 years ago, he's been... Uh, kind of like a father to me in, in many ways. And uh, I appreciate that very much. Uh, Dr. Norris as well. Um, I very much appreciate Levi. And um, I think, though, after that introduction, I have to make it clear that I've, I've read enough uh, student evaluations to realize that if the wheels fall off my teaching career, I, I certainly do not have as a, a future as a motivational speaker. So um, I'm, I'm afraid that you're in for a treat tonight. So anyway, so introduction. When Dr. Secord contacted me last summer about the possibility of presenting one of the lectures in the Christ Institute's inaugural series of lectures, I was, for a number of reasons, both eager and honored to accept the invitation. In the email I received from Dr. Secord, he made it clear that in the lecture I would present, he wanted me to address the question of how the church should respond to the postmodernism of the age in which we live. As I have been wrestling with that question in my preparation for this presentation, I've happened upon a couple of working titles that have served their purpose for a short while, but then were quickly discarded for what were, as I'm sure you'll agree, obvious reasons. The first was simplistic and, in retrospect, embarrassingly trite. How should we respond to postmodernism? That working title asked. And the answer, also in the title, was very carefully. <laughs> the second title, I imagine, might work, seemed a bit better for a while, but but then dawned on me that it too was problematic because it was more than just a little confusing, even to me. Postmodernism, that working title, began the friend and foe of Orthodox Christianity. Shortly after dismissing that second working title, I finally landed on the title that gets to the heart of what I want, what I want to address this evening. And I hope that by the time we all need to head home a little later tonight, you'll see why I think that is the case. The title of my presentation this evening is Postmodernism and the God's Eye View of Reality, a Christian Assessment. In a nutshell, and utilizing the categories articulated by J. Gresham Machen in 1912 in his important article, Christianity and Culture, what I want to argue this evening is that Christians should respond to the postmodernism of the age in which we live neither by accommodating Christianity to the prevailing spirit of the age, by bending Christian truth claims into conformity with the assumptions and truth claims of postmodern thought, as committed theological liberals are hell-bent on doing, nor should Christians retreat from the postmodern culture in which we live by rejecting the assumptions and truth claims of postmodern thought out of hand presuming that postmodernism offers nothing of value to thoughtful believers who are fully persuaded of the objective truthfulness of the Christian worldview. Rather, instead of responding to postmodernism in either of these fashions, Christians should respond, I contend, by engaging the assumptions and truth claims of postmodern thought with all the enthusiasm of the various humanists, as Machen puts it in his essay, and we should do so in order that we might again, as Machen puts it, consecrate those assumptions and truth claims to the service of our God. In short, at the heart of what I want to argue this evening is that Christians should respond to the postmodern spirit of the age in which we live 
by doing what faithful Christians are called to do in every generation, namely, take every thought of that generation captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10. We should engage the assumptions and truth claims of committed postmodernists, in other words, not so that we can become more like committed postmodernists ourselves, nor so that we can know what committed postmodernists are believing so that we can retreat from the world they are constructing into what Machen calls a sort of modernized intellectual monasticism. No. What Christians are called to do, I maintain, is engage the assumptions and truth claims of postmodern thought so that we can embrace what we can and reject what we must and in so doing plunder the treasures of our postmodern contemporaries in order that we might use those treasures not to subvert, but to advance God's kingdom purposes. When Christians respond to postmodernism in this fashion, we will understand, I contend, that while a number of its assumptions and truth claims in fact are, when wielded by unbelieving scholars, subversive of those standards of truth, goodness, and beauty, that are essential to Christian orthodoxy. Nevertheless, we will recognize that a number of those same assumptions and truth claims can, when wrested from the godless commitments of those same unbelieving scholars, offer insights that will assist the faithful in maintaining and advancing those standards of truth, goodness, and beauty that are essential to the Christian worldview and, it should go without saying, to cultural sanity as well. Section 2, the postmodern turn, turn. So what is postmodernism? And how are we to account for what philosophers refer to as our culture's turn from a modern to a postmodern paradigm? In their incisive analysis of postmodern thought entitled Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay argue that postmodernism is best understood as a form of radical skepticism that is grounded in a, rejection, in a reaction to and a rejection of both modernity and modernism. If modernity is that era of human history that witnessed the profound cultural transformation which saw the rise of representative democracy, the age of science, the supersedence of reason over superstition, the establishment of individual liberties to live according to one's values. Modernism is the intellectual movement that generated the epistemological certainties that made that cultural transformation possible, or at least that is what scholars like Pluckrose and Lindsay maintain. While committed postmodernists acknowledge that the architects of modern thought were skeptical of some approaches to legitimizing truth claims that were prevalent in the early modern era, like those approaches that attempted to legitimize religious truth claims by appealing to religious narratives or authorities of one sort or another. Nevertheless, they insist that in the present age, a new paradigm is needed because the architects of modern thought were not as skeptical as they ought to have been of the ways in which they were legitimizing the truth claims that came to serve as the foundational certainties of the new age that they were endeavoring to establish. What this suggests, then, is that committed postmodernists are persuaded that a new paradigm is needed because they are convinced that those who laid the intellectual foundations for the modern era ought to have been more skeptical not just of the religious narratives and authorities that were being used by some to legitimize religious or spiritual kinds of truth claims, but also of the narratives and authorities that were being used to legitimize all kinds of truth claims, including and especially those that modernists themselves were using to establish and maintain what ultimately became the foundations upon which today's advanced civilizations are built. If this is the case, then it doesn't take much imagination to understand why committed modernists like Pluckrose and Lindsay are persuaded that postmodernism represents an existential threat not just to modernism, but to modernity itself. But why, 
specifically do postmodernists insist that the architects of modern thought did not go far enough in their critique of the narratives that they were fashioning to legitimize the truth claims that are at the foundation of the modern era? What, in other words, is at the heart of the postmodern rejection of the modern paradigm and of the narratives that modernist, modernists fashioned in order to legitimize that paradigm. According to Pluck, Rose, and Lindsay, postmodernists are persuaded that modernists did not go far enough in their skepticism because they were philosophical realists who naively and mistakenly presumed that objective reality can be known through more or less reliable methods. They naively and wrongly and maybe even arrogantly imagined, in other words, that not only does an objective reality exist, there in fact is, in other words, a real world that exists independently of the individual knower and the knowing, and the knowing community. But they also maintained that we can know this independently existing reality in a way that corresponds to the way it objectively is. And for this reason, they denied what postmodernists insist, somewhat ironically, is indisputably, dare I say, objectively true. Namely, that objective knowledge of, real of the reality that we inhabit, in fact, is not possible because none of us has the wherewithal either to know objectively or to talk about reality in a totally neutral, completely unbiased, perfectly objective, and therefore godlike fashion. I'm going to come back to this point in the, at the end of, the, of this presentation. For now, though, note that for postmodernists, the modern paradigm is unsustainable and must be abandoned because it presumes that human beings have the kind of knowledge that only God, if God exists, can have. Only God can stand outside of time, place, circumstance, and historical context. And for that reason, only God, and only God alone, can have what could be called a God's eye view of reality. Indeed, only God can see and assess reality in a totally neutral, completely unbiased, and perfectly objective fashion, for only he, and only he alone, transcends reality, and for that reason only he can have knowledge of reality, or some aspect of reality, that is not in some sense formed and shaped and conditioned by some manifestation of cultural embeddedness. We on the other hand, are not transcendent like God, but instead we are the kinds of beings who always find ourselves embedded in particular social, historical, cultural, and linguistic contexts. And for that reason, all of our knowing of every aspect of the world that we inhabit is formed, shaped, and in some sense conditioned by the social, historical, cultural, and linguistic contexts that we find ourselves embedded in. Since no human being can abstract himself from the context in which he is embedded, and since no human being can avoid being formed and shaped by, among other things, the language that is spoken and the narratives that are fashioned in their social, historical, and cultural contexts, postmodernists insist that reality, or at least that, or at least what we in our various contexts are conditioned to regard as reality, is always and everywhere, as Pluck, Rose, and Lindsay put it, the product of our socialization and lived experiences as constructed by the system systems of language or the narratives that govern how we think and talk and feel about the world that we inhabit in our various contexts. In short, the modern paradigm must be abandoned, postmodernists contend, because it fails to reckon with the fact that the human condition just is 
one of inescapable cultural embeddedness. All of us, in other words, are formed and shaped and conditioned by the narratives that we recite to one another in our various social, historical, and cultural contexts. And for that reason, none of us can have objective knowledge of the world that we inhabit because none of us can know objectively. What this means for committed postmodernists, then, is, is that while there might be something out there called objective reality, objective knowledge of that reality is always and everywhere beyond our grasp because, as postmodernists like J. Richard Middleton and Brian Walsh contend, we have no access to something called reality apart from that which we represent as reality in our concepts, language, and discourse. We can never get outside of our culturally conditioned knowledge to check its accuracy against objective reality. Our access to reality is always mediated by our own linguistic and conceptual constructions. Before moving on to a brief assessment of the postmodern paradigm in the next section of this presentation, we must pause and ask if postmodernists really do believe that reality itself is, in a very real or tangible sense, a social construction. Do postmodernists really believe, in other words, that we are bringing reality into existence when we talk about it in various ways in our various contexts? According to Pluckrose and Lindsay, the answer to this question reveals how knowledge, language, and cultural or political power are inextricably entwined in the postmodern mind. While postmodernists do not believe that we are actually bringing reality into existence by talking about it in various ways in our various contexts, they nonetheless insist that the understanding of reality, reality that will come to prevail in a particular context will always be as D.A. Carson puts it, some group's construction of reality that invariably ends up being the dominant construction that guides social life. If that is the case, then which group's construction of reality, or, in other words, which group's narrative or way of legitimizing its way of seeing and understanding the world that the larger community is inhabiting, will come to prevail in a particular social, historical, and cultural context. In short, committed postmodernists insist that the construction of reality that will come to prevail in a particular context, that is, the narrative that will come to inform and guide the way the larger community will see and think about truth and the world that it is inhabiting, will always be the construction that is grounded in the narrative or the legitimized understanding of reality that is proffered or put forward by the group that has the most power. Note how the convergence of knowledge, language or narrative and power, while not explicitly addressed in the quotation that follows, nevertheless is hovering in the background of Pluckrose and Lindsay's explanation of the postmodern understanding of social or cultural constructivism. Quote, cultural constructivism is not the belief that reality is literally created by cultural beliefs. It does not argue, for instance, that when we erroneously believed the sun went around the earth, our beliefs had any influence over the solar system and its dynamics. Instead, it is the position that humans are so tied into their cultural frameworks that all truth or knowledge claims and the narratives that we fashion to legitimize those claims are merely representations of those frameworks. We have decided that it is true or it is known that the earth goes round the sun because of the way we establish truth in our current culture. That is, 
although reality doesn't change in accordance with our beliefs or the narratives that, fa that we fashion to legitimize our beliefs, what does change is what we are able to regard as true or false or crazy about reality. If we belonged to a culture that produced and legitimated knowledge differently, within that cultural paradigm, it might be true that, say, the sun goes round the earth. Those who would be regarded as crazy to disagree would also change accordingly. End quote. Section 3, The Postmodern Paradigm, A Brief Assessment. So, what are thoughtful Christians to make of the postmodern paradigm? Should we treat it as if it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, as many of our more progressive friends, family members, and colleagues are presently doing? Or should we treat it as an ideology that is nothing but trouble, as many others are doing, and as I, frankly, find myself being tempted to do from time to time. In my estimation, Christians should respond to postmodernism by recognizing that its abandonment of realism, the idea that there is an independently existing real reality, something outside of my mind actually exists. Um, so we should respond to postmodernism by recognizing that its abandonment of realism and its accommodation of a constructivist understanding of reality is problematic for several reasons, two of which I want to address in the remainder of this presentation. In the first place, it is problematic because it is the kiss of death to those things that are necessary to the pursuit and cultivation of authentic human flourishing. The justification for this contention requires a bit of unpacking. While postmodernists would have us believe that the oppressive and tyrannical confines of the modern paradigm must be abandoned so that all human beings, including those who are on the margins of a particular culture, can flourish and find fulfillment in ways that align with the narratives that form and shape how they see and think about reality. In fact, the postmodern mind of, is subversive of authentic human flourishing for two very basic reasons. First, postmodernism is subversive of the inherent worth, dignity, and moral agency that just are the essential building blocks of human identity. Indeed, for postmodernists, the identity of a particular human being is grounded neither in what that particular human being is as a human being, nor is it grounded in what that particular human being has or has not done to cultivate or develop his or her uniquely human capacities. And I'm thinking here of those capacities for rational thought and responsible moral agency that Christians believe are part and parcel of what it means to be created in the image of God. Rather, since a particular human being is presumed by postmodernists to be, just like everything else is, nothing more than, as Pluckrose and Lindsay put it, a product of powerful <coughs> discourses or narratives, that construct how that human being and others are to think about who and what that human being is, given all that, that particular human being is to, regard, is to be regarded first and foremost, not as a human being who must be taken seriously as an individual, him or herself. No. For postmodernists, that particular human being is little more than a cipher or a placeholder for all of the cultural narratives that are associated with all of the non-essential characteristics that position that human being in one way or another in the power structure of the larger society, and that, in so doing, construct that human being's identity 
in a particular fashion, whether that human being likes it or not. In a nutshell, Christians should recognize in the first place that postmodernism is the kiss of death to the pursuit and cultivation of authentic human flourishing because it rejects the notion that there in fact is an individual self that has an individual identity that can be cultivated. This is the case because, for committed postmodernists, identity is not earned or cultivated or developed by the human being, him or herself. Rather, it is imposed on the human being by the narratives that are associated with the characteristics that describe that human being in a particular fashion and which position him or her in one way or another in the power structure of the larger society. So I'm white, I'm male, I'm heterosexual, I'm a Christian. There are narratives that are associated with all of those characteristics. And those narratives are fashioned by the culture in which I live. And all of those narratives together place me and people like me at the very pinnacle of society, at least in terms of being uh, a moral reprobate of some kind. Um, so I've got that going for me. <laughs> Second. Postmodernism is also subversive of authentic human flourishing because it denies the existence of those standards of truth, goodness, and beauty that are essential to the moral and social order, not just of the communities in which we live, but also of the world that we inhabit. After reducing the identity of a particular human being to the cluster of narratives that for all intents and purposes are assigned to that human being by the group in the larger society that has the most power, postmodernists go on to deny that there in fact are objective standards of truth, goodness, and beauty that will, when embraced, direct not just some, but all moral agents, no matter who they are or where they are from, to that end which could justifiably be described as the good life. According to Pluckrose and Lindsay, again, for postmodernists, all standards of truth, goodness, and beauty, quote, are believed to have been constructed by the dominant discourses or narratives that operate within a society. And because we cannot step outside our own system and categories and therefore have no vantage point from which to examine them, postmodernism insists that no one set of cultural norms can be said to be better than any other. For postmodernists, any meaningful critique of a culture's values and ethics from within a different culture is impossible, since each culture operates under different concepts of knowledge and speaks only from its own biases. All such critique is therefore erroneous at best and a moral infraction at worst, since it presupposes one's own culture to be objectively superior." End quote. When this form of moral and ethical relativism is considered in light of the postmodern readiness to view particular human beings as ciphers or placeholders for the various narratives that construct their identity and position them in the power structure of the larger society, it is not difficult to understand why the postmodern paradigm is a recipe not for flourishing, whether on the level of the individual or the larger collective, but for moral and social disaster. If true knowledge of objective standards of truth, goodness, and beauty, in fact, is beyond the reach of those who are embedded in one context or another, then not only will those individuals remain oblivious to those standards of truth, goodness, and beauty that many insist are the essential means to human flourishing, but the standards that will come to prevail in a particular context will inevitably 
be the standards of the group that has the most power. What this means, of course, is that the standards that will prevail in a particular context will be the standards that will serve the purposes or ends of those who are fashioning the dominant narrative, whatever those purposes or ends might be, and whether those purposes or ends will serve the interests of those who have less power or not. In my estimation, we are seeing something like this kind of authoritarian paradigm playing itself out before our, our eyes in the culture in which we live. And to state the obvious, it should concern us. For what it suggests is that the more the postmodern paradigm is accommodated, the more chaos, disorder, death, and destruction we can expect. Because the fact of the matter is that the postmodern paradigm makes it possible for human beings and groups of human beings to justify anything and everything, including gulags and death camps for those who are guilty of some kind of heterodoxy. While some might think that our culture is too advanced and refined to tolerate such atrocities, I would suggest that the recent history of the West would indicate that there is sufficient precedent to conclude that such thinking is unspeakably naive. In the second place, postmodernism is problematic not just because it is the kiss of death to authentic human flourishing, but also because it is subversive of all forms of orthodoxy including Christian orthodoxy. As several of us in this room know from painful and exasperating personal experience, when postmodernism is accommodated by pastors, theologians, and school administrators who profess to be orthodox believers, the faithful witness of the churches and institutions with which those individuals are associated is invariably compromised. But why is this the case? The answer to this question is found in understanding the impact that the postmodern paradigm has on how pastors, theologians, and school administrators conceive of theological doctrines and the role that they should play in the lives of professing believers. <coughs> to illustrate this impact and help us understand why postmodernism is subversive of orthodoxy, <coughs> The discussion that follows will revisit a debate that was raging in the evangelical world a quarter of a century ago, and that continues to be implicit in many of the debates that are ongoing in the evangelical world today. That debate, which was then and is now between those evangelicals who identify themselves as conservative and post-conservative evangelicals respectively, centers on the question of whether it is possible for human beings to have objective knowledge of God and the truth that he has revealed. In short, conservative evangelicals insist that it is possible, and post-conservative ev evangelicals insist that it is not. In order to make sense of this debate, and before offering a critique of post-conservative evangelicalism, some background is in order. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, American evangelicals were largely united in their antipathy to what Machen referred to as the paganism of modern theological liberalism. While evangelicals in the 19th and 20th centuries certainly had their differences, they were on the same page with respect to their desire to champion the objective truthfulness of God's revelation along with our ability to know it, and they were united at least in principle, in their rejection of the theologically liberal tendency to begin theologizing with the self and the self's experiences rather than with God and his word. Indeed, American evangelicals were confident that they had reliable access not just to their own ineffable experiences of an altogether vague and impersonal spiritual presence, but to transcendent truth that is revealed in both nat nature and scripture, discerned by those with the spiritual capacity to both see and hear, formulated in doctrines that were thought to be both objectively true and subjectively compelling, and centered on the sovereign Lord who is, as David Wells puts it, both the source of truth 
and the meaning-bestowing norm for all of the human centers, centers of private interest, of ethnicity, of gender, of sexuality, and of perspective. Since those who stood in the mainstream of American evangelicalism were convinced that it is the knowledge of what God has revealed that grounds, shapes, and give me gives meaning to Christian existence, they insisted that both the nature and the quality of this existence are invariably compromised when either the substance or the significance of this truth is undermined or abandoned. Indeed, many argued that when we lose confidence in the capacity of one doctrinal formulation or another to communicate information that is believed to be both objectively true and subjectively compelling, we inevitably retreat into some manifestation of the self as the primary channel through which we presume to encounter that which we take to be sacred. In the process, we turn away from God to a form of spiritual narcissism that is characterized more by human striving than it is by humble receiving, a form of spirituality that at bottom is difficult to distinguish from a host of spiritualities that are more than at home in our increasingly secular world. Unfortunately, the unanimity that North American evangelicals once enjoyed in this regard has largely come to an end because of, the, because of a paradigm shift among some evangelicals known as post-conservative evangelicalism. According to Justin Taylor, post-conservative evangelicals are neither theological conservatives nor theological liberals, but they are self-professed evangelicals who are eager to steer a faithful course between the scylla of conservative traditionalism on the one hand and the charybdis of liberal progressivism on the other. While post-conservatives are more or less conservative because they affirm the universal truthfulness of the story of Scripture, at the same time they are more or less liberal because they regard attempts to articulate this story in terms of doctrines that are thought to be both objectively true and subjectively compelling as misguided at best and destructive at worst. Indeed, post-conservatives are convinced that conservative evangelicals are unable to speak effectively to those living in a postmodern world because conservatism's understanding of doctrinal truth is shaped by habits of mind that postmodernists believe are tragically outmoded. Since those living in a postmodern context are keenly aware of what they insist is the contextual nature of all human knowledge, they regard the very idea of an objectively true doctrine as passé, and perhaps as nothing more than a disturbing relic of an altogether doctrinaire and spiritually oppressive past. In order to speak effectively to those who have accommodated the postmodern paradigm, post-conservatives therefore insist that Christians must articulate what God has revealed in a fashion that allows them to, as a conservative like me would put it, have their cake and eat it too. Christians must articulate what God has revealed, in other words, in a fashion that affirms the universal truthfulness of the Christian story on the one hand, while simultaneously repudiating that form of dogmatism on the other that they believe is grounded in an outmoded commitment to the notion of objective doctrinal truth. Christians accomplish both of these ends at the same time, post-conservatives contend, by embracing some of the more moderate building blocks of the postmodern paradigm, including those that inform what has come to be known as the hermeneutics of finitude. According to post-conservative evangelicals, there is no such thing as an objective, transcultural vantage point from which to assess and interpret the Christian narrative. Indeed, post-conservatives are convinced that objective doctrinal knowledge is beyond the reach of finite human beings because all of our attempts to understand the story of Scripture are tethered to a particular context. And while that context affords a perspective on the Christian narrative, it cannot afford a perspective that is either comprehensive 
or free of bias. For this reason, whereas conservatives are convinced that doctrines are true when they correspond with the truthfulness of what God has made known, post-conservatives post insist that doctrines are true when they enable believers who are located in one context or another to see reality in a fashion that is shaped by the story of Scripture, thus enabling them to think and live in a manner that is true because it is authentically Christian. Whatever that might mean in a world devoid of objective doctrinal standards. Despite the rather serious nature of their disagreement over the role and function of doctrine, Conservative evangelicals applaud the eagerness of their post-conservative brethren to reach those living in a postmodern world with the good news of the gospel. Nevertheless, they are convinced that post-conservatism's understanding of the relationship between the Christian narrative and doctrine has been compromised by a form of agnosticism that threatens the integrity of the Christian religion. Like their more progressive forerunners in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, post-conservatives insist that objective knowledge of God and of his revelation is beyond the reach of finite human beings because of the manifold limitations of the creaturely condition. Whereas the liberals of old were convinced that objective knowledge of God and of his revelation is unattainable because finite human beings cannot transcend the limitations of their individual experience, Post-conservative evangelicals insist that such knowledge is beyond the reach of finite human beings because they are embedded in and shaped by communities that are located in one social, historical, cultural context or another. Although post-conservatives acknowledge that the communities in which human beings are embedded afford a particular perspective on what God has made known, they believe this perspective is not objective but it is biased by the appropriation of the narrative that is peculiar to the context of that community. For this reason, post-conservatives not only reject the possibility of objective knowledge of God and of his revelation, but they also insist that doctrinal articulations of this revelation must change from one social location to another because doctrines qua doctrines, doctrines as doctrines, can neither communicate truth that is transculturally true, nor function in a fashion that is pragmatically relevant to every social context. Doctrines, post-conservatives like Robert Weber maintain, are merely attempts within a particular cultural moment and geographical place to express the faith in a fresh way. And I have no earthly idea what he's talking about. <laughs> While conservatives like D.A. Carson are eager to acknowledge that the postmodern that postmodern thinkers are entirely right to remind us that all human knowing is necessarily the knowing of finite human beings, and is therefore in some ways partial, non-final, conditional, and dependent upon a specific culture. Nevertheless, they are distressed by the doctrinal agnosticism of their post-conservative brethren for two important reasons. In the first place, it is disturbing to conservative evangelicals because it reflects what they insist is a profound indebtedness to what Michael Horton calls the most modern inclination to begin theologizing with that which is human rather than with that which is divine. Whereas the liberals of old insisted that the starting point for both moral and religious reflection was the ineffable experience of the autonomous self instead of the knowledge of God and of his revelation, post-conservatives insist that the starting point for such reflection is the experience of the self as a member of a community that is embedded in one social, historical, cultural context or another. <clears throat> Rather than insisting that what distinguishes contemporary evangelicalism from other postmodern spiritualities is its commitment to doctrinal truth that is believed to correspond to the way reality objectively is, post-conservatives instead baptize a mindset that, 
as Wells puts it, carries within it the seeds of destruction for evangelical faith, for it minimizes the significance of objective truth in order to become attractive to postmodern seekers. Indeed, by abandoning, uh, by abandoning the notion of truth that distinguishes evangelical faith from the plethora of spiritualities that are at home in the postmodern world, post-conservatives are not only demonstrating remarkable affinity with the progressives who drank the Kool-Aid of cultural accommodation more than a century ago, but more importantly, they are embracing the justification for their own irrelevance. For as Wells argues, they are reducing the Christian religion to a form of religious expression that is just one of many spiritual spiritualities in the marketplace, even as the liberal Protestants much earlier diminished Christianity by making it out to be just one among many religions, better than others, perhaps, but not unique. In the second place, post-conservatism's doctrinal agnosticism is also distressing to conservative evangelicals because it is grounded in what conservatives insist is a profound misunderstanding of the conservative evangelical mind a misunderstanding that in their estimation exposes the rather tenuous justification for the entire post-conservative project. As we have seen, post-conservative evangelicals justify their post-conservatism in part by insisting that conservatism's commitment to objective truth is based upon habits of mind that are passé. In fact, post-conservatives are convinced that more progressive inclinations are warranted because they believe that conservative evangelicals are thoroughgoing modernists whose confidence in the cognitive powers of the fallen human mind is evidence of their indifference to the subjective and experiential factors that play an important role in our apprehension of God and of the truth of his revelation. But unlike more committed modernists, and despite what their post-conservative brethren would have us believe. Conservatives at their best have always acknowledged that objective as well as subjective factors play an important role in our ability to know God and the substance of what he has revealed. Indeed, they have argued that such knowledge is possible not because finite human beings have the ability to lay hold of what God has revealed in an unbiased, comprehensive, and mathematically indubitable fashion, but because those who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear lay hold of this revelation in a fashion that is biased by the work of God's Spirit and the formative assumptions of the biblical worldview. While committed post-conservatives find this assertion difficult, if not impossible, to swallow, Nevertheless, it is true that the best thinkers in the conservative mainstream have always insisted that the possibility of objective doctrinal knowledge is not undermined, but established by the subjective and experiential factors that play a decisive role in the believer's ability to lay hold of God and the truth of his revelation, for they are persuaded that, in fact, these factors just do enable God's people to have a more or less God's eye view of the world that we inhabit. What this suggests, then, is that although conservative evangelicals acknowledge that finite and fallen human beings will never see reality precisely the way God sees it, nevertheless, they insist that those who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear not only can, but in fact will see reality more or less the way God would have his creatures see it, which means that we are not as limited in our ability to lay hold of the truth that God has revealed as committed postmodernists would have us believe. Conclusion. Are there any postmodern treasures that evangelicals can plunder? <laughs> plunder. <laughs> Having spent pretty much all of my time this evening saying critical things about the problems that I think are associated with postmodernism and the post-conservative appropriation of the postmodern paradigm, I conclude this presentation by asking 
whether faithful believers can glean anything of value from postmodernism. In short, I think that we not only can, but we must. In his short yet helpful article, The Dangers and Delights of Postmodernism, D.A. Carson contends that one of the reasons that evangelicals should cherish and cultivate some elements of postmodernism is because it offers a powerful reminder of something that many of us, due to what George Marsden calls the evangelical love affair with enlightenment science, have forgotten. Namely, that there is more to human knowing than rationality, proofs, evidence, and linear thought. No matter how much we retain the view that evidence and logic are fundamental to human reflection and discourse, Carson contends, we are now much more aware of the way that aesthetic, social, intuitive, linguistic, and other factors influence our thinking. While Carson is undoubtedly correct in this assessment, it is also undoubtedly, and I would add sadly true, that in fact, many if not most American evangelicals give every indication of being the third they give every indication of being the thoroughgoing modernists that post-conservative evangelicals insist they are. For they give every indication of believing that human beings can have object objective knowledge of God and of the world that we inhabit because they are persuaded that, persuaded that human beings can, in fact, lay hold of objective truth objectively. That is, without any kind of bias whatsoever. But the fact of the matter, which finds significant support in the testimony of the Reformed tradition, is that human beings are, are not and cannot be neutral. And committed postmodernists are, thankfully, reminding us that this is the case. While there is much more that could be said at this point, We'll save that for another time. Thank you.